how attackers get in, and a couple zero days. Well, at least one zero day. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth, and he is Paul Ducklin. Hello, Doug. Well, let's start with a little tech history. I'd like to bring to your attention that this week, on June 8th, 1978, Intel released the 8086, a 16-bit microprocessor that gave rise to the x86 architecture, which has been used in approximately one bajillion IBM PC-compatible computers over the years. Ironically, the original IBM PC used the slower less expensive 8-bit Intel 8088 chip. Yes, you'd think that the 8-bit chip would come out first and then it mm-hmm. would be upgraded to the 8086. No, sir. Yeah. Hey, let's do the cheap version. I suppose it's like when you've got your big block V8 that isn't selling very well, but people like the styling. You stick a little straight 6 motor in there and sell it for a bit cheaper, don't you? Something like mm-hmm. that. I think I may be showing my automotive age there, Doug. It's so long <laughs> since I had a car. Do you still even get V8s anymore? Or oh, are they considered, well, uh, they considered infra dignitatem these days? Yeah, I don't know. I just filled up my car. It was uh, $72. And uh, so that's a, I think that's a V6. So I, I, I wouldn't want to know what a V8 costs to fill up nowadays. Oh, I thought you were going to say, oh, I just filled up my car and it was 72 kilowatt hours. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know about you, Paul, but I have uh, delighted several times over the years in the x86 architecture. So thank you, Intel, for bringing that out. And uh, something we don't delight in around here is uh, adversaries, cyber criminals. And uh, we have a big report out called uh, the Active Adversary Playbook 2022. And it's a look at how the bad guys get into your network. We looked at 144 real-life cases that our uh, Sophos Rapid Response team tackled during 2021 and uh, found out some interesting insights, Paul. Yes, uh, this was done by friend and colleague John Shire. And what I like about it is that it doesn't talk about what might have been. Oh, there are these 17,000 techniques and the crooks could use any or all of them. There's a place for reports like that. But this didn't talk about what might have happened These are attacks that we were called in to help with because something had gone wrong. Mm -hmm. So obviously and unfortunately, the true figures or the true stats out of this in real life might be slightly worse. What about the attacks where nobody noticed at all until it was too late and we were never called in, so we never got to investigate? Sure. Because obviously once you're called in, the attack ends and you go, hey, the crooks were in for 52 days. But if we hadn't been called in, how much longer might they have been there in attacks that nobody ever really found out about? So I like this report because it's absolutely based on Sophos Rapid Response. It gives you a fantastic idea, like I said, not of what might have happened, but what did happen. So, you know, if you're a sort of risk management type or you want to know what are the things that I should do first if I haven't done already, then this is a great way to focus your mind on where to start. doesn't mean that you can put off doing all the other things forever, but if, like most cybersecurity responders, you're struggling with budget and time, then this makes sure that you haven't left out the things that you really should have done first because they give you what you might say the biggest bang for the buck. Yeah, and uh, we've got some... uh... Some of the usual suspects here, we've got unpatched vulnerabilities, we've got RDP, we've got stolen data, 
they're not super shocking numbers, but it's uh, just a reminder, especially the unpatched vulnerabilities. We have unpatched vulnerabilities were the entry point for close to half of the attacks that uh, yes. ended getting in. And so when we say patch early, patch often, that's a, that's a real thing. It really is. You know, you think in the old days it would have been guest passwords or it would have been public RDP portals that the company had forgotten about. Those are down below 15% of attacks now start with RDP. But in a rather fateful reminder that you can't think about network security as your primary defense anymore, because networks don't really have a perimeter anymore, what's up is the use of RDP for the crooks to wander around once they're inside. So RDP is still a problem. It's just not the problem that it used to be. So 50% likelihood the crooks will get in because you didn't patch. But then once they're inside, they're going, well, you locked down all your RDP at the edge really well, but you've been quite sloppy inside because you kind of assume no one's going to get in in the first place. Mm -hmm. In particular, when ransomware did not appear to be the primary goal of the crooks, the average length of time that they were in was more than a month. So if you're making it easy for them to go wherever they want by having insecure RDP inside, then that is something you really need to address. I think that stood out really, really clearly. And of course, you mentioned stolen data. And we noticed that the attackers were known to have stolen data in approximately 40% of all the incidents that we investigated. And my gut feeling is that the true number is probably a little or even a lot higher. Because the 40% represent those incidents where we knew the crooks had stolen data because they left behind incontrovertible evidence, such as scheduled tasks that used cloud backup clients that the crooks themselves have installed to upload all your data to a service you did not normally use. That's a dead giveaway. But the thing with stolen data is it's not like stolen property, where you (laughs) go into your study and there's a hole where your laptop used to be They've taken it. (laughs) Uh, But with data, although we call it data theft, it's not always obvious because you still have a copy. And if you think about it, even if all the crooks are doing a figuring out your passwords for resale to other criminals later while they're in, then they've stolen data. So when we say 40% had stolen data, that pretty much means that they harvested it with industrial quality equipment. Okay, so those were non-ransomware attacks, with so those long dwell times. And you, I guess, Paul, could you could you kind of make the argument that you'd almost, not that you want either, but a ransomware attack is pretty cut and dried and over with. They get in, maybe they're there for a little bit, but boom, ransomware. And you can either restore from backup, get your files back, deal with it. Is that a, is that a more optimal situation than having someone effectively like living in your basement for a month without you knowing it and just kind of rooting around your house when you're not home. I suspect that your choice of words cut and dried and more optimal. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying there, Doug. Yeah. Is it less worse? <laughs> yeah. And clearly a ransomware attack is really is like being punched in the face. It could cause your business to derail then and there. As you know, we've talked about on the podcast, there is a small but non-trivial number of companies that don't survive ransomware attacks like it is essentially the end of the world for them but yes i think you can make 
a case to say that actually the the living in the basement story and remember they're not living in the basement they're kind of living in amongst the rooms of your house but they're kind of invisible like a ghost yeah yeah it i think it's a vital reminder and john shire makes this absolutely clear explains this very well in the paper there are if you like entire cliques clans i don't know what the right word is in the cybercrime community that aren't really into ransomware at all and one of those groups that they go by the it's rather a mouthful but the jargon term is they are called iabs it sounds like a bit of an investment vehicle to me it sounds mm-hmm. a bit too positive but that means initial access broker basically people who go in and learn all about you and your staff and your company and your customers and your suppliers and anything they can find, harvest all that data, get your passwords, learn what your network looks like, basically create a detailed video tour of your entire business operation, and then go and sell it. And they don't only and always sell it to one group. So the ransomware crooks, well, they want to get in and they want to know what the network looks like. That saves them time. It means they're less likely to get caught. They don't have to map out your network if someone's already got the blow-by-blow diagram. On the other hand, you know, your customer data, that may go to a second party. Your supplier details may go to a third party. Your financial records and your bank account details, that may go to a fourth party. Who knows? So it's easy to say, oh, ransomware, that that the majority of attacks are ransomware. It is somewhere around two-thirds, I think. The one-third, those are lesser crooks, the ones who, as you say, live in the basement. I don't think that's a reasonable inference to make at all. I think that you could argue that for many businesses, the final result could be worse. And just think about it. Their goal is not to hold your business to ransom. It's to know everything about you. And as we know, when data breaches happen, frequently that doesn't just put the business at risk. It could directly put your staff at risk. For example, if the crooks now have social security numbers, pension fund passwords, tax details, all of that stuff. They could then go after those people as individual victims if they want. And if they've got data about your suppliers and your customers, then there could be a knock-on effect for other people. They could even do things like if you make software, they could steal your code signing keys that they could sell to a fifth party who'd then use that stuff to sign malware. So they may be aiding and abetting a whole range of other later cybercrimes, not just ransomware. Okay. And on that cheery note, Doug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, give the good people uh, where to go to download this report. is available for free, and you can get it at sophos.com slash playbook2022, or you can read the highlights on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And this next story, Paul, this is uh, an interesting... uh, (laughs) We talked a little bit about the uh, Microsoft Felina uh, bug last week. This is similar. This is Windows, uh, the search URL handling. And the question here is, is this a feature or or a zero day? Yes, I wrote this up on Naked Security in the aftermath of the so-called Felina vulnerability. That's where you can have a URL buried in a word file that when you open the word file it causes the microsoft diagnostic toolkit to open and tells it hey the diagnosis involves you running this powershell code 
So clearly that's what you might call a, a, an extreme risk created by the fact that there's this magic URL that you probably didn't expect. Like, who knew that you'd ever need to have an automatically accessed link in a Word document that could help you run the Microsoft troubleshooting tool? Like, if you wanted it, surely you could just go and run it yourself. And in the aftermath of that, because there are so many of these special proprietary URLs, it turns out what's called in the jargon a URL scheme. That's the bit up to the first colon. So SMTP colon, that's for email. LDAP colon, that's for directory services lookups. And Mike, when you go into the Windows registry, actually, there's a whole slew of them that either start or end with MS, MS for Microsoft. And you think, oh my golly, they've got special URLs for Word files and Excel files and PowerPoint files. Oh, golly, I wonder how many of these diagnostic toolkit problems are just sitting there waiting to be uncovered. And of course, the Felina story caused a whole load of people to go looking. And this person found something that I, I, I called it zero day brackets sort of. I think they were stretching things to look good by calling it a zero day. But it is a reminder that how easily features turn into bugs. So in this case, the special URL is search-ms colon. That's the URL scheme. And what that does is instead of just doing a web search and bringing you to what's obviously a web page with search results in, this researcher discovered that if you use this dedicated search-ms colon URL, then you can populate a file explorer window with a list of files that you choose. Somehow this Explorer window is magically opened up that just happens to offer a load of files from somebody else's server. You ought to notice that's as bad an idea to open those as it is to download random stuff from a random web page. But to be fair to the researcher who figured this out, it is kind of more believable. It's sort of got the Windows imprimatur because it doesn't come up in your browser. So it doesn't look like, oh, this is a web search. And the other thing is that you can customize what it says at the top of the window. You know, you, you could put in reassuring text that isn't in a web page. If I click see one of these files, and since I don't have file extensions turned on by default, would I, could I be made to think that I'm clicking on some sort of document and it's actually an executable? I think that's an excellent point, something that's a real bugbear of mine and has been for, I think, at least two decades. And that is this almost pathological desire of Microsoft <laughs> not to tell you the true name of a And it's not just Microsoft. There are know, Linux yeah. applications that do it. There yeah. are Mac applications that do it. It's called My Document. You don't need to know what the extension is. The system will sort that out for you. And, of course, what that means is that if an attacker deliberately puts two dots in the file name and gives a name dot txt dot exe for example then if you have extensions turned off the file will come up as though it is showing you the extension and you'll think hey it's telling me the full story it's obviously actually a dot txt file and you forget the fact that the real extension is a second extension at the end that you can't see and that's that is a real problem in this case. So by default, I think you could much more easily be tricked than 
like I said, just landing on a website. I don't think this is a zero day. Calling it a vulnerability might be a bit of a stretch, but it is one of potentially many of those weird Microsoft URLs that you might want to consider deleting from the registry yourself if you're a home user or across your network if you're a sysadmin with group policy just because they are likely to be much more trouble than they will ever be worth. But it's not for me to make that decision for you, but the article helps you understand why you might want to remove something that Microsoft obviously thought was a tremendously good idea at the time and probably has been really useful to several people. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yeah. as many as three or six yeah. in the past. <laughs> There's uh, some advice there, most of which we uh, touched on already, but you can go over and read that article. That is yet another zero day, sort of, in Windows search URL handling on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Now let's talk about a real zero day, this time with Atlassian's Confluence server. Yes, Atlassian is a very well-known company, perhaps best known for Jira, which lots of companies use. It's a, a what would you call it, a trouble t- a ticketing system. Confluence is, I suppose, their discussion forum, commercial wiki kind of thing. It's written in Java. I think you know where this is going, if you mm. remember Log4Shell. <laughs> And it seems, I don't know the details of the bug, because obviously Atlassian didn't want to blurt it out before they had the fix ready, but it does seem that there was text you could add to a URL that when you access the Confluence server, it was dollar squiggly bracket, just Ah, like in Log4Shell. There are obviously some characters that if you put them in the URL, when they were consumed or used by the server, I'm guessing they weren't treated literally they were treating a dollar squiggly bracket. Actually, inside here is a kind of command that lets me do things that really you wouldn't let me do if you knew I was coming in from outside and wasn't a a, a trusted user squiggly bracket. And so it looks like that's what the problem was, which means that people can make legitimate looking requests and then the server goes and does something bad. And for better or for worse, This bug was found by a threat response company out of the US, I think, called Volexity. And they were doing a threat hunting gig, like the ones that John Shire looked into to get the stats, which are all anonymized, by the way. Nobody's named and shamed uh, in in his report. Unfortunately, they then wrote it up and they said, hey, we're not going to tell you exactly how this works, but wow, we we were looking into this attack that seemed to be unfolding and this company kept getting web shells, which, you know, like web-based backdoors, dropped into Java server pages. And when we looked, guess what? We found there was an O-Day in Atlassian's product. Oh, and by the way, we told them. So Atlassian responded in what I think was a calm and effective way. They didn't keep publishing PR platitudes. They said very little. They just said, yes, there's a bug. No, we're not going to give exact details Here's the CVE number. Here are some mitigations that you can use over the next two days. By the end of the day of the 3rd of June, Pacific Daylight Time, we'll have a fix out. They said what they were going to do in plain and simple English, went away and did it, and they did indeed get the fix out on the 3rd of June. So patch early, patch often. And they said, 
if you're one of those companies that just takes 17 weeks of committee meetings to decide to go through an official update and you actually want to get the fix out, here's a way you can do it by hand. So you have to uh, delete two Java archive files, jar files, product modules, and replace them with updated ones. And there's an extra little dot class file, a compiled Java file that you insert to complete a temporary fix. So I thought that was a, a good response, but it was a zero day. It was a difficult situation for Atlassian because the company that founded and reported to them couldn't resist getting their own 15 minutes of fame by telling everyone about it before the fix was available. So I think this is a good one, Doug. It's kind of an all's well that ends well situation. Unless you're still dithering about patching. Don't delay. Definitely do it today. All right. Well, that is uh, Atlassian announces zero-day hole in Confluence server. Update now on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And as the sun begins to slowly set on our show for this week, it's time to hear from one of our readers on the Windows search URL handling story. Reader Bill writes, yuck. I just went into the registry to see what other, quote, undocumented features, end quote, are in the H key classes root. What did I find? Job security, which tickled me <laughs> to no end when I read that. Yes, I think that reflects the sort of spirit of the researcher who said, oh, I think I found another zero day. You know, it just goes to show that when somebody finds a way, like with the Folina bug, to exploit what used to be considered a feature, you shouldn't be surprised. And it's not a bad thing if that spurs a whole load of researchers to seek their 15 minutes of fame by saying, hey, let me go and look at all this other stuff. I think what Bill was getting at there is that when it comes to magic registry settings that let URLs trigger behavior that isn't in any book anywhere and isn't in the official guide to all the types of URL you'll ever see in the whole world, when you get very long lists like that of things that people thought were a feature at one time, well, that is a reminder that sometimes in coding and in cybersecurity, less Douglas is very much more. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, again, thank you for that comment, Bill, for making yeah, us hit the laugh. Yeah, nail right on the head. I Nailed it. And, yeah, and made me laugh as well. Yeah. But after laughing, I thought, it's kind of not really a joke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's right. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at selfos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure. <laughs>